Hi everyone, and welcome back to Think Like a Human. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Cilio, and today we are going to be talking about music and the value that it has in our lives, especially focusing in on wonder and the effects that it can have on our emotions. In philosophy, aesthetics is the study of beauty and taste, um, especially focused on art and the natural world. Within aesthetics, there are a few specific disciplines um, focused on the different areas of art. There's the visual arts, such as painting and sculpture, um, the literary arts, like novels and poetry. There's music and performance art, uh, such as theater or dance. And there are a few different ways to approach questions of aesthetics. We can ask what makes art in general valuable to us, or we can focus in on these narrower categories, trying to figure out what it is that they specifically give us. There are a few different contenders floating around for general aesthetic theories, such as um, perhaps that the art in question gives us emotional value, that it's beautiful, that the art brings us together as human beings, or um, has cognitive value, and there's a bunch more um, that I'm not going to go into right now. But I recently took a class on general aesthetic theory with Professor Racy at CMC, where we were discussing the value of art, um, and in particular, what makes great art great. So what it is that distinguishes the good art from the bad art, basically. And tied into all of that is questions of, you know, why do we value art overall? And um, what we were trying to do specifically was find a sort of unified theory that would work across all the different disciplines. And what we found instead is that it sort of turns out that each discipline sort of has its own reason to be valued. And so a unified theory is kind of a fool's mission in a certain sense. One of the very large unsolved questions that I had coming out of the class was the question of the value of music. The obvious response definitely seems to be emotions. It just makes the most sense. Um, music plays on our emotions and it allows us to regulate our mood, etc. And so in the question of why do we value music aesthetically, the idea of emotions seems like the perfect fit. However, um, when you look closer, you realize that the idea of music playing with emotions is a bit two-dimensional and overly general because, well, first of all, in when, when dealing with music and aesthetics, specifically one needs to deal with absolute music. Um, absolute music is music without words, which is opposed to lyrical music, music with words. The problem with lyrical music is that it's a bit of a cop-out because lyrical music sort of starts to blend music with literature. Um, and so if one is looking for an aesthetic theory on music, and because absolute music presents the greater challenge, one has to look at absolute music. Um, basically, you have to prove it for both, and absolute music is the higher bar to jump across. And so in this episode, I sat down with Professor Racy to try and puzzle through some of these ideas. Um, and we had the help of a couple of aesthetic theories, one by Roger Scrutton concerning music and emotion, and one by Jesse Prince concerning wonder. Um, both of these people are philosophers who have had plenty of opinions on um, aesthetics, and yeah, I really resonated with their ideas and wanted to dig deeper into them. 
Concerning Roger Scruton's ideas, I really do personally feel the connection um, between music and emotion. Music has always been a big part of my own emotional life. I've had a very strong personal connection with it as a way to set my mood or sort of get me in the flow for adventure sports that I do. So I can totally understand the idea of music being connected with emotions. And in fact, it's an idea that I connect with very personally. When it comes to Jesse Prince's ideas concerning wonder, I, again, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, I always have loved listening to new music, um, music that's new to me, not necessarily new as in like contemporary. And further, this idea kind of plays into Kant's overarching aesthetic theory of the beauty of beauty and the sublime. Um, Kant places the emphasis on the sort of indescribability of experiences of beauty, uh, which is more similar to Prince's wonder or awe um, that we experience in watching a thunderstorm or going to Yosemite. Kant's ideas also came up in our aesthetics class. It felt very intuitive, um, but it sort of didn't pan out uh, in the details. And so it would be really cool to see if Jesse Prince can bring this one home. Want to give a couple quick shout outs to other philosophy podcasts out there. Um, first of all, Professor Racy, my interviewee for today, has his own podcast, uh, which he records with Professor John Farrell, another professor at CMC, where um, they talk about questions. The podcast is called Good Question, and so go give them a listen. They're great. And um, also, I had some help on this podcast from Philosophy Bites, uh, just in introducing me to Jesse Prince and his ideas. Philosophy Bites is a great philosophy podcast. Um, where these two guys, Nigel Walberton and David Edmonds, sit down with philosophers to discuss their ideas in these short 15 to 20 minute episodes. So, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and stay tuned for more content in the coming weeks. Ready? I'm ready if you are. Okay. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for coming and sitting down with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, and thanks to everyone who's listening. Yeah. So I'll just start this off kind of easy. What types of music do you do you listen to? Yeah, well, the, the honest answer kind of sounds like pretentious, which is good, that I'm good, into good. a lot of different things. I don't really think I have one particular type. I have some things I don't listen to. Uh, I've never listened to reggae. I've never listened to the blues. Just I'm not saying they're bad art forms. They just don't do it for me. But other than that, I sort of wander here and there. I've got some Pandora channels and Spotify playlists, and I just sort of shuffle between them. And for me, music, it, it depends on the context and why I'm listening. And there are right. things I listen to while I'm walking that I don't listen to while I'm sitting down and, you know, very intently listening to music. Right. So you feel that like music plays maybe like different parts in your life or like different types of music would play different parts in your life. Yeah, because it very much affects my mood. I mean, I think it does that for a lot of people, but right. I've always felt I was very sensitive to the moods created by music. So I sort of pick it out to match the activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, a pretty cool segue into what I was hoping to talk about today because um, of the class that we've had um, recently, our aesthetics class, where I feel like we discussed um, a few different possible ways that, that art can affect us. Um, I mean, our, our class was most, mostly focused on, um, on aesthetics in general and the value of, uh, of art and, um, 
one of the things that always puzzled me coming out of that class was the value that we have for music, which is what I was hoping to sit down and talk with you today about. Because I feel like there's a sense in which um, music is, uh, it's almost paradoxical because we think that we, we have this instant reaction, music is, oh, music affects our mood, it affects our emotions. And then in class, when we dug a little bit deeper, we had the issue of, of realizing that music only um, seems to affect a few emotions or, or, or very big picture emotions. And so, yeah, so in class, we discussed a few different ways that music could be special to us um, as an art form. One of the ways that music could be special to us that we identified was emotions, the thought of emotional regulation, it kind of might give you perhaps a sense of control over your emotions um, or to allow you to influence them in a specific way. Another thread of, uh, of music specialness that we, that we explored was the idea of connection with others, maybe not as uh, explicitly, but it definitely came up in class. And with more experimental music, the idea of music as exploring sonic space or being innovative in some sense. So my question for you is just, is there anything of those, I guess, three sort of broad categories, do any one of them jump out at you as this is what makes music special? Or I guess what makes music special to you? Yeah, well, it's a it's a great question. And I think you've hit on the right starting point, which is that when most people think about music, the thing that's most striking about music is how it affects our emotions. Of course, it does other things. Um, it can just give us pleasure. And music with words can communicate ideas or stories. But music really does seem striking in the way it affects our emotions, right? Um, for example, you can not be sad and, and listen to a sad song. And 10 seconds later, you're feeling sad. Um, or you can already be feeling sad. And you can want to go listen to sad music, right? When people break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, they listen to sad songs, right? They don't go look at sad paintings or read right. sad short stories, even right. though there are those things. So music seems tied to our emotions. But the great starting point you've identified is that this also seems kind of paradoxical in a certain way when you begin to push on it. And you think, well, is that really what gives music its value? And there are a whole lot of problems that come up. Like you mentioned one of them, which is that when you think about the range of emotions that can be communicated in music, it can seem like it's pretty narrow. I mean, there can be happy songs and sad songs, maybe angry songs, maybe fearful songs, but it's hard to do contrite, for example. Yeah. And there are all kinds of human emotions that feel like it would be hard to express in, in music. And so I think if you want to figure out what's special about music, the thing to do is to try to, try to grapple with that, right? So can you actually make good on this idea that the special value of music is in emotion? Or does it turn out that once you poke and prod at that, it falls apart and you've got to explain some other way in which music is special? Mm -hmm. And by the way, a whole presupposition behind that question is that we're going to find one thing or one main thing that makes music valuable. And of course, another possibility is maybe what we discover is that music and maybe other art forms are valuable for a range of reasons which combine to make it special. So maybe music is valuable because of its uh, the emotions it creates and the pleasure it creates um, and maybe the understanding it creates, at least when it has words. So that's the way I try to think through the problem. I don't have any grand solution to it. Right. I do know this, that on a visceral level, I've always felt, even since I was a little kid, like I'm very strongly affected emotionally by music. And so I'm drawn to try to make good sense of this idea that that is one of the big 
you know, places where we find value in music because it just seems so true to me on a on a basic level. Right. As a philosopher, I know we've got to probe this and see whether it holds up, but it seems to me there's got to be something about music where at least part of its value has to do with emotion. Right. So if one of the trains of thought that we're going to um, to explore a little bit is music tied with emotion, um, it would be pretty hard to do that without mentioning the philosopher Roger Scruton. He makes the argument that, or well, he assumes as a premise of his argument that um, that music affects our emotions and that it plays our emotions. Um, as you mentioned yourself just now, it actually is pretty intuitive. Um, it's something that you can experience, um, music affecting your emotions, and it seems to give everyone this sort of uh, empirical evidence that's very unshakable. And so he actually, he was making the argument in his article that music in playing on our emotions can actually have a lasting effect on our character and who we are, and that the music that we listen to more, perhaps, is going to, uh, we're going to identify with it and we're going to take on some of the values that that type of music professes. And so his whole argument was that in his day, being the, the late 1900s, Music was degenerating in the sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll scene. Um, so he was worried that we're all going to be gaining bad traits from listening to bad music. What do you what do you make of, of Scruton's argument? Do you find it plausible? Yeah, well, I think one of the fascinating things about Scruton's argument is that at first it sounds totally implausible, right? Right. You think somebody comes along and says, the music you listen to is going to deeply affect your character and change who you are. And you think, well, that doesn't quite seem to be what happens. But a thing that I've enjoyed, especially getting to teach Scruton, is that I find that as you push on it, it at least has more plausibility than you originally thought, right? So the idea is that emotions um, can be excited by music, right? So let's say you could feel angry if you listen to, I don't know, angry punk rock or something like that. And then there's some more steps we got to go through that say, well, you not only feel angry at that moment, but maybe you become a more angry person in general. And that's a pretty big gap there, but you know, it's not impossible to bridge that gap and, and you wanna explore whether or not this is the case. And I think Scruton has in mind even more than, I guess what we might ordinary, ordinarily call emotions, right? So he thinks, for example, some music shows two voices blending in perfect harmony. Some music is some guy screaming into a microphone, right? And he thinks those sort of portray different ways of envisioning human life, human life as harmony versus human life as one individual on their own reacting with, well, screams, right? right. And, and these things too kind of get into your head and he thinks eventually affect your character. So for me, there's no question that music affects you in the moment. The thing I would want to analyze if I wanted to get to the bottom of Scruton is, can we make that leap then to show that this affects your character in the long term? And now we have to decide actually a kind of meta question. So how are we even going to figure that out? As a philosopher, I'm kind of skeptical of the idea that a philosopher alone could settle that because it sounds like a scientific question. So everybody's first idea is, well, can't we just do a study, right? right. Um, can't we get a bunch of people who listen to country and a bunch of people who listen to punk and a bunch of people who listen to whatever? And then, I don't know, track their crime rates or something and then see whether or not the music is affecting their character. The limitation there is that any study of that sort would be unbelievably difficult to do, right? right. You have to find people who listen to at least predominantly one genre of music 
And then you've got to try to rule out all the other factors that might influence their behavior and figure out whether there's a connection between the music and their behavior. So the upshot of that is that even though I'm inclined to be scientifically minded and sort of scientifically test Scruton's hypothesis, that's really hard to do. So that feels like it gives us a little bit of a license to try to settle this using, I guess what you might call common sense or folk knowledge. Right. And so then you begin to think about yourself and the people around you and you begin to ask questions like, well, can I see a connection about how this music might affect me personally? And I don't know that I've ever come up with a definitive answer to that. But like I said, I, for me, the value of Scruton is it makes me really focus on that question and take it seriously because that mm -hmm. connection's not as implausible as it seems at first. Like, let's get concrete about this. I listened to a lot of punk when I was young. Now, you might think, well, okay, so um, you listen to it at the moment and it made you feel, I don't know, angry or maybe even violent. And one hypothesis is you felt that way when you listened to the music and then you went on being you. But I don't know, maybe looking back on it, listening to all that punk music made me a slightly more angry person. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's plausible, right? And so one can at least begin to think about the music in your life and whether or not it's affecting you in certain ways. That I think is the great upshot is that it just leads to all these great questions that you can ask about your own experiences with music. Totally. And it's interesting that you should um, bring in the idea of a study because that that made me think of just, um, yeah, just how impossible that that would be, um, in part because of the way in which we all integrate music into our lives as almost like a, it's more of like, I feel like the music that we listen to, that we, um, that we listen to consistently, that would actually have the possibility of conferring such a, a character change. We identify with that in a certain way. And it, not only do we identify with it, but we listen to music that identifies with us. Right. Right. Like, I feel like it's a two-way road in a certain sense. And so I feel like it would be such a difficult question just based on that way that, that music is such a big part of our identity. Right. So if you already have people who are slightly more angry in general, right. maybe they're attracted to music that's angry rather than the music causing anger. In right. Them. Right. Yeah. Like thinking that um, the, the specific example I was thinking of was uh, was back in my high school days. All my friends used to listen to a bunch of Eminem. Uh -huh. um, and they were my friends in, in high school were definitely the angry kids in high school. But was that because of the Eminem that they listened to? Was that was the Eminem that they listened to because they were the angry kids at high school? Yeah. Who's to say? And there's a possibility, right, that there's a kind of feedback loop. So you're right. already the angry kid in high school, so you listen to Eminem. But then the messages you hear from Eminem sort of reinforce the idea that being the way you are is an okay way to be. Right. Certainly not encouraging you to change, right? So that's another way in which music might be not exactly changing your character, but at least reinforcing the idea that your character is okay as it is. Right. Right. And I would totally see that that in and of itself. Um, I know we're talking about music in connection with emotion right now, but that in and of itself, I could see as a uh, as an argument for or evidence for music as a connecting force, um, just in the way that it uh, it brings us into these sorts of communities of listeners um, or people who identify with the same sort of music. And not only does it bring us into those communities, but it holds us there in a certain sense, because uh, like you're saying, with this idea of a feedback loop, it sort of will um, or it could cause us to have more of those emotions like the like what the music normally brought out in us and just sort of like dig us down a, a hole of, of 
similarity to that to that type of music i guess right and with any music that has lyrics like eminem right it's not just that you're in a community of people who share your emotions right there are ideas expressed in that music and so now the community has a kind of richer shared consciousness because you all know that you share not just emotions but thoughts about the world and how to view it right right to go back to scrutton and his his idea of uh, musical degeneration regardless of his argument on it all what do you what do you think about music today do you feel like um do you feel like he's right if 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 we're to take scrutton at face value and music does affect us um in in an emotional sense etc um do you believe that that the way that music is affecting us is is getting worse in some sense no i don't see any reason to to think that at all and even even scrutton might have changed his his mind if we were to ask him now like what do you think of contemporary music because the music that seems to upset him in the part of his book that we read is nirvana in particular right right? so 90s nirvana and he's worried about grunge and the fact that it has very simple harmonies and you can't understand the person singing it seems like a lot of screaming and so on and of course that phase is gone from music i mean it's not that you can't find grunge bands or that people don't listen to nirvana but um you know he was worried about the absence of uh, clear rhythm and um, harmony and clear melody. And of course, a lot of pop music these days, whether you like it or not, it's got those elements, right? right. So he even right. might think that it gets better. Right. But, you know, to focus on more than Scruton, on just this idea of music and how it's changed over time, I mean, I think there's plenty of good music around now. It's not like music has degenerated. I do think, though, that you don't have to proclaim that the music of every era is equivalent. I mean, I think music goes through phases, right? So, for example, there are periods of great fertility where people are inventing new forms of music. And then there are periods where people are just like playing out the forms of music they've already got. And for me, one of the really interesting things about the music that my students listen to is that, you know, I'm 30 years older than my students. But the basic forms of music that you're listening to are the ones that were invented when I was a kid, right? So so this is a difference that might not be evident to people who mm-hmm. didn't grow up in my era, but like um, punk rock came to exist when I was a kid. It wasn't there before. Hip hop came to exist. It didn't exist before. Rap, right? right? Mod, ska, there are just endless lists of forms of music that came to exist. And a lot of my students, they listen to maybe third, fourth generation versions of those music, of right. you know, rap, right, right, hip hop, right. punk. But I don't feel like there's been some grand new invention of a musical genre or subgenre for a while. I mean, maybe grunge in the 90s. Now, look, maybe I'm just ignorant uh-huh. and I don't listen to enough current music. But even when I ask my students like, hey, do you think your generation invented a new form of music? The closest I've ever gotten to an answer is they say, well, maybe boy bands. <laughs> really? That's... But I don't even know if that's a genre. And I'm not even sure that my current students are the inventors because there have been boy bands for a while. Right, right. That's interesting. Because um, I, I, I would say, uh, I would say, of course, my generation has um, maybe not invented, but at least popularized or... Um, a, a musical genre has has rose to, rose to prominence in in my generation. I could totally see that with with electronic music and yeah. EDM. Um, though I'm not sure. Would you would you consider that to have to have already been invented? Sort of like like rap music and, and yeah. Other I mean, it's hard. I mean, there are no clear categories, right? But I right. mean, I once asked. So students give me that kind of answer. They say mm-hmm. dubstep or whatever, and I say, okay, so send me some some sample tracks. 
And, you know, it's not that things exactly like that were being done 20 or 30 years ago, but it's not, it's not a huge difference, right? right? It's a difference of degree. Right. And the comparison you have to have is, you know, again, like my parents were listening to things like Frank Sinatra. Okay. So imagine your parents are listening to Frank Sinatra and then you're listening to punk. That's a right. huge difference <laughs> yeah. or rap. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. difference. And yeah. I think that the gap between me, because I could easily be, I'm old enough, I could be the parent of my students, right? The difference between what I listened to as a kid and what you listen to is not as great as that previous difference. Mm -hmm. But I also, mm -hmm. this is not meant as a judgment, right? As I said, music just goes through kind of pulsing phases, right? And yeah. sometimes we're in a period where we're inventing new things and sometimes we're exploring the things we've already got. And it feels to me a little bit more like we're in an exploration phase. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally would agree with that just based on, um, on, I feel like the, like what you're expressing with the difference between your generation and your parents' generation is that there's like the sort of almost like rebelling against, like, especially with punk, I guess, um, that would make more sense, but it's it's a sort of rejection of the values of the previous generation. Yeah. Um, at least with music. Whereas with my generation, I feel like there is a celebration of values of the previous generation. It's like, oh, all we've got today is, or at least for, for myself, um, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I feel at least, I feel very strongly drawn to the music of, of previous generations, like with the Beatles or Bob Marley, um, stuff that my parents were listening to um, when they were my age, and also um, the stuff that I was that I was brought up on. The sense that I feel around music is that the better days are behind us, and that um, oh, would wouldn't it have been awesome to live when X, Y, and Z was still was still making music. So it's interesting that you would you would express such a such a you know rejection, um, and I guess that that totally goes in line with your exploration versus um, expansion sort of ideas. Yeah, you know your idea though that we that the best days are behind us. That's kind of sad, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So you just don't feel there's any band now that sort of competes with the greats of the past. I mean, it's yeah, a high bar really. though. The people you picked, right? So you, yeah. pick, for example, the Beatles. Okay. They're, they're the Beatles, The right? Beatles, yeah. <laughs> so if what you want is every generation to have its Beatles, that's not probably realistic. But, right. you know, right. could every generation have their Nirvana? You know, no offense to Nirvana, but I guess I wouldn't put Nirvana up there with the Beatles in terms of, you know, grand achievements. But but you would at least give them their... But they're incredible. Their, and Cobain yeah. was an amazing songwriter and amazing singer, right? Yeah. And don't yeah. you think your generation at least has... Someone like that or some band like that? Well, yeah, I'd honestly, I honestly would, would uh, be a little worried about there being the possibility for that just in terms of, um, in terms of the, the scene that we've got around music right now, um, especially with, with hosting platforms like Spotify and Apple Music now. I feel like there's been such a shift from specific uh, specific artists and um, and albums to this sort of like playlist world that we now live in, where everyone is listening to. Oh, it's not like they're going to um, put on the the Beatles record um, and let it let it go. Um, instead, they're going to hit play on their Good Vibes playlist that maybe has three Beatles songs. <laughs> right two Bob Marley songs and then 
a whole host of whatever else. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the question of could something as good as the Beatles be produced again today, I think that totally... Um, I could totally see something musically as good as the Beatles being produced today, but I wonder if that same sort of cultural phenomenon is possible with the current way that we listen to music. You know, you actually kind of hit on a sort of aesthetics question there, which I guess we could say is, what is the proper unit of listening? So here's what I have in mind, right? Like, we all know that if you just listen to 10 seconds of a song, you haven't listened to the whole song. Yeah. Okay, so we know at least you should listen to the whole song if you want to form an aesthetic opinion about the song. Right. But there is a question of whether, at least with some bands, you shouldn't be listening to more than one song. Maybe you should be listening to the album. Mm -hmm. And there certainly were bands that saw themselves as album bands, right? Like right. Pink Floyd is a great example. I think a lot of Pink Floyd fans, and I'm one, think that the proper unit of listening for at least certain Pink Floyd albums is the album. The album, yeah. So if you're going to listen to The Wall, you should listen to the whole thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you're right that that sort of thing has sort of disappeared. People don't listen to whole albums anymore. And so mm -hmm. if you're the kind of artist who thinks that what they have to offer is album length, it's going to be very hard to achieve what you want to achieve, right? Yeah. And yeah. this happens all the time. You know, I mean, if you're a great epic poet, you don't have a market anymore, right? Nobody's, nobody's reading epic poetry. So uh, right. this happens. Units of listening and units of experience change over time. Right, right. Yeah, and I um, I can totally see that affecting the even like having a, a reverse effect on the the music industry itself today because I like you now see um, albums with like just twenty something songs on them. Um, I mean not like twenty something songs on them like the wall, how it's meant to be this sort of epic, but twenty songs that are like just completely disconnected. It's sort of like the the artist trying to cover as many bases as they can to cater to the sort of tastes of the audience. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's that's only natural in a certain sense. Well, and I don't know that much about it, but I did recently read an article that was about the skipping phenomenon, right? We all know right. with Pandora or Spotify playlist, you can skip ahead if you don't like the song in a way that you couldn't if you actually had a physical record on a record player across the room, right? Where right. you were too lazy to get up and skip ahead on a yeah. track. Yeah. But so the effect is that if you don't hook somebody in about 10 seconds on a song, they're going to skip, right? Right. So what you have to do is you have to front load the most interesting part of your music. It better be interesting up front. There's no long, slow introduction to your song anymore because nobody's going to put up with that. Hmm. So the technology changes the way people have to construct their music. And so again, there may be artists who would be good at tracks that are not instantly catchy, but those people are going to have a hard time finding an audience these days. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to change tack just a little bit. Sure. Um, I actually came across something or, or an avenue that we didn't explore in class. Jesse Prince has this, um, this, uh, this. Well, I guess kind of new. Um, I'm realizing that it's a little bit similar to Kant's idea of the sublime, but his idea is um, wonderment as the sort of um, binding force for aesthetics. It's what um, it's what we 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 desire in aesthetics, not instead instead of. Um, emotion or connection with other human beings he's talking about specifically wonder and i actually found this to be pretty intuitive as an idea um it made a lot of sense to me on first on first pass because i can totally see that with um with all sorts of all sorts of art pieces that we specifically struggled with in our um in our aesthetics class to to sort of like fit them into 
a box of oh this is a good art piece because of the beauty that it has or this is a good art piece because of the cognitive content or the emotional content um a lot of a lot of the troubles that we had with those sorts of pieces in class were like were pieces such as um for example uh fountain by marcel duchamp which is um a urinal literally a urinal <laughs> um anyways marcel duchamp uh it's he, he has this art piece, which is literally just a urinal. We struggled a lot with those sorts of pieces of art in our aesthetics class because we um, it's very hard to fit that into one of the boxes that we that we are um, looking or one of the it's very hard to fit that into one of the aesthetic theories that we were dealing with in that class. Doesn't really make a lot of sense on the emotional level. It doesn't really make a lot of sense on the beauty level an argument could be made for some sort of cognitive um cognitive value in that it, it makes you think about uh perhaps our conceptions of art or what we believe to be art but i feel like at this point there are so many um you can only challenge the conception of art so many times before it just becomes i don't know pretentious i guess um However, when I was considering this with Jesse Prince's um, aesthetic theory, I totally did understand how ready-made art piece like that could give someone wonder. And honestly, I wondered myself, uh, <laughs> in a certain sense, at how it could be art um, and what could bring someone to uh, to try and to try and present this as a piece of art. I feel like his his idea of wonder gave those sorts of pieces that we struggled with a lot, um, maybe more of a run for their money. And yeah, I'm wondering what, um, what you might think about, um, this new theory, at least new to me. Yeah. Well, I've never read it either, but this is a podcast, so let's have fun. Let's play around with it. So, um, I take it what he's doing is he's trying to give a theory of what makes art good. Yes. Not what makes art art at all, but just what makes it good. And the good pieces create wonder or create a high degree of yes. wonder. Yes. So this is, I guess, what we might call a, um, a monistic theory, right? It picks out one thing as at least the principal value of art. And I think with those theories, there are at least two things you always want to ask. So first of all, there's going to be this key thing that they say art gives us, like emotion or wonder. And one thing we do as philosophers is we try to push on that a little bit and get an exact definition. Um, because, you know, some of these things sound good uh, at first, but then you try to probe what exactly they mean and you discover there are all sorts of puzzles. Like with wonder, you just described one kind of wonder, which is almost like puzzlement. So you see a urinal mm -hmm. in an art museum and you're puzzled. You don't know why it's there or why it's considered art. So that's one kind of wonder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess another situation where I might use the word wonder is, is, is closer to awe, right? Yeah. So I could imagine staring at a beautiful mountain and feeling a sense of wonder, yes. but I don't mean that I'm puzzled. I know it's a mountain. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a different sense of wonder. And I do think that's what Jesse Prince was going for. In oh, his, more the awe? Kind? More the awe sort of, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think it was, for him, it, it definitely is sort of a, an, an umbrella term. I see. Right? It was how he described it. Got it. That, um, yeah, it's it's it's. But the the point is, is that it would give us this one sort of way that we can uh, define all art. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and there he probably explores this too. But there are other senses of wonder I can think of, like 
Um, you know, like sometimes there are these, especially kids' books, like the Chronicle of Narnia, where you step yeah. through the door in the that's located in the back of your closet and you enter the world of Narnia. And people sometimes talk about a sense of wonder that's associated with the fantastical or the yeah. unreal and so on. Right, right. So let's suppose we identify all those senses of wonder. So one thing we could do is to pick out one of them and say, no, that's the one I'm interested in. I'm interested in awe or puzzlement. But then the problem we're going to get is it's probably going to turn out that some works of art don't seem to produce that, right? Yeah. So not all works of art produce puzzlement the way Duchamp's urinal does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can read a novel or a short story or poem and you understand it. You're not puzzled by it. In fact, the opposite. You may be impressed by its lucidity, right? So that's the danger of picking out one sense of wonder. And you sort of said that your impression is he goes for treating wonder as an umbrella term. Yeah. But the worry there is always that, well, you promised us you were picking out one characteristic of art, and now right. you're just listing a bunch of different ones. Right. So, right. of course, he knows all this, and I'm sure he tries to work this out. Um, but those are the initial things to think about, I think, for anyone who wants to know whether this is the right theory. And then once you've settled all that, you've identified what you consider to be wonder, then you've got to start thinking about whether or not this can really be the thing which makes all or almost all great art great. Like, as I said, I've never heard of this theory, never read about it. But mm -hmm. one of the first things that jumped into my mind as you were describing it is, so how does this relate to literature? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, of the many kinds of wonder, I think often when what I value in literature is not any of those kinds of wonder. Um, I'm not, when I read The Sun Also Rises, which is one of my favorite books, which I read over and over again, I'm not puzzled. Um, it's not fantastical. I mean, maybe there's a way in which I'm awed by it the way I'm awed by a beautiful mountain. I mean, I am amazed that anyone can write a great novel. Um, it seems to me like, you know, it's like running an ultra marathon. It seems like an incredible feat of, of human ingenuity and endurance. But that's not, I, I mean, I am there's struck by that. There's nothing special about that. Yeah. Well, and it's not, it's not what makes The Sun Also Rises great as a novel. <laughs> that's almost like looking at as a piece of endurance sport, right? right it's the right, content right. of the novel that's impressive. And I, I'm not sure it produces wonder in me in any way. But again, Prince, you know, Prince knows all this. And I bet there are, um, bet there are interesting discussions of it. But that's another thing as a, I would do if I was trying to figure out whether or not this theory is right. Yeah. It's interesting to me, actually, that you said that Duchamp's fountain produces wonderment in you. I mean, you are, we are puzzled when we see it, like, why the heck is this urinal in an art gallery? But insofar as you think Fountain is a great work of art, is that why it's great? It's because when people look at it, they go, hey, what's a urinal doing in the art gallery? It's something more cerebral than that, right? It's like this challenges the notion of what art is or makes me reconsider whether ordinary objects can be art objects or... Right. But, but now I can... that starts to sound cognitive, right? It's not. It does. It does sort of start to sound cognitive, but I wonder... I wonder um, if there if there could be I don't know because like like you said there is that that first impression yeah um, right where you are you're encountering this this piece of art this urinal on a pedestal in a museum right um, and you come up to this this piece of art and and you are right like that wonder the cognitive the cognitive aspect that we're talking about is sort of spurred on by the wonder yeah. Um, you 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 wonder why the why the heck, what the heck it's doing in a in a museum, and then that leads you down this train of thought to um, to have all these uh, thoughts about what art 
really is and um, what the artist was trying to perhaps do with the the piece of art, etc. Yeah. Um, Even if we could make it work for Fountain, would this help us resolve our questions about music that you've been posing? Like you've already mentioned the Beatles as a band that you think is mm -hmm. a great band. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. Is what's great about Beatles music that it produces a sense of wonder in us? Yeah, well, I've actually been... Um, I so I was as I was driving down here um, from the Bay Area. I was I did a plenty of thinking on that because I uh, I read this this piece by Prince just just before I started my my drive down, um, and as I'm sitting in the car for six six hours, um, and I was sort of listening to music with this idea of wonderment in the back of my mind, and I. At the very least, I can see the consistence. I can see it being consistent with experience in the sense that, um, and I know that this is very specifically me um, and my own way of listening to music, that not everyone listens to music in this way. But the way that I listen to music very much has to do with a sense of wonder. Um, I'll, I went through a Beatles phase last summer, mm -hmm. um, since we're talking about them, and I... So I've, I've, the Beatles have been an enormous part of my um, music listening career, uh, I guess you could call it. Uh, I was brought up on the Beatles by my parents. Um, there was some of the first music that I listened to. There's a locally famous Beatles festival in uh, my hometown of San Anselmo. And so it's been a very big part of my music, um, of the music that I listened to. And so, but that being said, I didn't listen to Beatles music for years up until last summer when I sort of I guess rediscovered them and started listening to them again and for that whole summer the Beatles were basically all that I listened to um so I could totally I, I totally see how wonderment could explain that because it's this great music it like of course the Beatles are amazing you know that that's generally accepted and so you know you could totally gain a sense of wonderment just from that but what I, where I was getting my wonderment was from having something new to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, and because of how much I listened to the Beatles beforehand, they weren't, like maybe if I had listened to them when I was 14 or 15, they wouldn't have been as new. But then I'm 20 years old um, and I haven't listened to them in years and I'm listening to them and it's almost like I'm listening to them for the first time or I'm rediscovering them and um, listening to the lyrics with a different perspective, etc. I, I listened to basically new music and only music that's new to me until I get tired of it, and then it goes off into some corner of my Spotify playlists to be damned uh, to purgatory for <laughs> until I until I until I rediscover it and right. and and enjoy it again. What I what I love getting out of music is this is yeah it's it's a sen it's a sense of wonder. It's listening to that new song and and hearing something about it that I guess like fills me with maybe not awe but just it's really hard to describe. It's um, I really don't even know what word to use for the emotion, um, but I would totally see wonder as coming about as close as you could um, to it. Right. Well, and this is the kind of explanation that you're going to need in a theory like this is that. Um, you know, no theory automatically fits everything we already believe about art and aesthetics. And usually there has to be some argument about why 
either these things that are great art actually do fit with the theory. Uh, in right. this case, they do really produce wonder. But of course, theories can also be revisionary. Sometimes you have a theory, an aesthetic theory, and you say, well, um, this theory doesn't say that certain works which are regarded as great are actually great. And I'm going to bite the bullet and say, hey, those works are not as great as we thought they were because they don't do what my theory says they should do. So those two paths are open and you're sort of illustrating how Prince could take one of them with at least some of the, the problematic cases. Right. Right, right, right. How do you listen to music today? What's your, I guess, primary medium that you listen to it through? Um, I guess there are two. Uh, so there's a lot of listening to music while I'm exercising. So that's all done in earbuds. I'm conflicted about that because I'm out in nature and I want to fully experience mm. nature, which is another aesthetic object, if you want to call it that, that you can experience. And there's something weird about drowning out the nature sounds to replace them with music. Yeah. But I do often make that trade-off. So I've got a lot of music through the earbuds. Um, and then I guess around the house, well, actually, maybe there there's sort of two ways around the house. There's just, you know, Pandora or Spotify playlists streaming in the background sometimes. And then your attention goes in and out, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. you hear a song and you stop and, and listen to that. But then also, maybe not as often as I'd like, there's a much more intentional way of listening to music. For, so for some reason, it's on my radar. There's something I'm supposed to listen to. I don't know, I've heard a podcast review of a certain album or something, and I sit down to try to intensely listen. I feel like I do a lot less of that than I used to. Maybe this is just another change that we've all gone through as the years have gone by. Yeah. Um, I think I used to sit down, you know, in front of the stereo and, uh, you know, when I was a kid and, and right. listen to right. music in a certain way that I probably don't do as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how I, I definitely feel like um, even I myself had times in my childhood when I would do that. Yeah. Just that, just sit in front of a stereo and listen. Now it seems like we're just doing so many million and one things and it's all so ubiquitous. You know, music is just yeah. always there um, that I, I myself don't even, I couldn't even tell you the last time I sat down and listened to music and just listened to music other than, say, driving. Right. Because um, for me, I, I do a lot of driving. And so music, I, I find that the times when I can, when I most do that sort of a thing, um, especially like someone's told, yeah, like someone's told me, listen to this, um, something like that. That's mostly in the car. I read an interesting essay by the author Brett Easton Ellis, who was talking about this idea of investment. So, uh, you know, back in the day when you had to somehow make your way to a record shop and spend your valuable money um, on what were very expensive records, and then you had to bring them home, you probably wanted to listen to those things intensely just because of the amount of investment in both right. time and money that you'd put right. into them. So even right. if you put it on and you didn't like the first two songs, you probably listened to that album multiple times because of that level of investment. And of course, the level of investment now to listen to music is very, very low. Very And low. so none of us do that. And there are upsides and downsides, right? I mean, mm -hmm. technology giveth and it taketh away. So yeah. it's taken away that sense of investment and maybe we do less intense listening. But of course, the flip side is music's way more available. So mm -hmm. as a kid, I could only listen to the music that was being played for me on the radio or that I owned on albums, which wasn't a lot because albums were expensive. Yeah. And now all of us can experience music from the whole world. Um, yeah. But it is, it is cheap and easy. And so maybe we don't focus on us as much as we did true but 
in the way that it's cheap and easy. Um, when you were a kid, you would have, like, if you wanted to listen to music, you would have had to be within range of a stereo or a radio. Yeah, like absolutely. That. Whereas um, for myself, like, uh, I, like I, I was listening to music on my five-minute um, drive from my house over to campus. <laughs> right. Um, I was listening to music earlier this morning as I was just, you know, type finishing typing up a few things for the interview. Right. It's just, it's always on and it's always in the background like yeah. that. Um, Although for the record, I'm not so old that we didn't have car stereos. So even in the okay. five minute drive, <laughs> I could have listened to music. That's you're fair. right. That's fair. I mean, another way to think of it is everybody basically these days has their phone with them and your phone is loaded with music. So mm -hmm. music is always there for it's you whenever always you want. There. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of a nice thing. I mean, it's so I've, I, like you said at the very beginning of this chat, um, you were talking about how you use music a lot to like sort of set the mood or um, for specific activities. And yeah, um, I totally, I like that's maybe the, the biggest way that I use music is to um, take that sort of control over the, my mood and set myself into a certain vibe of whatever I want it to be. Um, right. I'm waking up in the morning, it's a gray day, and I'm, I don't feel like doing my homework. Um, I'll put on some, some, good, some good happy songs and start working away. Um, yeah, I feel like yeah. this is an aspect of, I guess you could call it aesthetics, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. I mean, maybe because it's more in the realm of psychology, but I feel like in general in the world, you know, we're, we're very vividly aware of some very specific ways in which people try to regulate or change their mental state, like psychedelic drugs or something like that. But we sometimes don't notice that all people do this, right? So caffeine, we, we sort of don't yeah. talk about it as a drug, but it is a drug, right? Definitely. And many people are regulating their mood with caffeine. And music is like this too. Because it has such an emotional connection, many of us use it to change our mood, right? So when you're not feeling any energy, you know, just put on, I don't know, Groove is in the Heart by Delight, and you'll want to get up and dance for two minutes and you'll feel better. Yeah. And um, maybe that is not aesthetically what's ultimately valuable in the music, but it's it's a value that music provides. And it's a way in which it figures into our life that we don't often notice or think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we'll that's only something that we'll um, that I feel like we'll see more and more because, um, I mean, at this point, um, I feel like music has almost reached a critical point of like. Like, how much more could it get integrated with our lives? I personally don't see it. It seems like we've got it on our phones. It's always there. Every single song that we could possibly want um, connected to tiny little earbuds that we stick in our ears. Now they have Bluetooth earbuds that, like the Air, Apple AirPods that people will just leave in their ears. Um, and... So I'm just I'm just very very curious to see what the next step is going to be. Yeah. Hey, how about personalized music? I thought of this because in medicine, because I work a lot in medical ethics, there's this big move to what they call precision medicine. So the idea that you might uh, produce a drug that's particularly useful for treating one specific person's cancer. So how about an AI? This would be in the future, which knows which songs you already like. It goes yeah. through all your playlists and then it creates music just for you. That is will optimized it has all the qualities you like and so how about a future where we're all listening to different music being created for us in real time by our silicon overlords 
that's truly horrifying. <laughs> You're starting to sound old, like you don't want to move into the future, right? But yeah, yeah. But one maybe. day you'll be on this side of the mic and some 20-year-old will be interviewing you and they're going to be like, what? He doesn't like precision music? This guy's stuck in the past. As you might imagine, I had a lot of fun talking with Professor Racy about this. Um, and I feel like I had a lot of takeaways from it. Some of my takeaways were that I feel like this conversation helped me think a lot more about the bigger forces moving behind music. It was a good reminder to realize that this tension between artist and listener um, that I've noticed in Spotify and similar platforms isn't anything new. Just as we can say that Spotify is making the song the standard unit of listening for today, the same could be said for the album and the era of records, tapes, and CDs. It also helped give me a different perspective on the movements going through music at different times in the recent history of music, and how that might relate to the music listening experience now. Um, let me just say that I absolutely hate the example that I brought up of Duchamp's Fountain. Um, it seems gimmicky, and I could have totally come up with a better one to describe wonder. Um, however, I kept it in the episode because I'm not sorry that I did, um, because it led us in a very interesting direction, um, bringing back an old issue that I've had with aesthetics since my class. Basically, like, the tension between narrow and broad theories of art. In formulating an aesthetic theory, you're always trying to find the happy medium too broad and things that aren't art or things that aren't good art are going to be included, um, too narrow and things that are good art aren't going to be included. Um, so to try and hold on to either side, you're going to have to bite some bullets somewhere. Um, and you can do that on the narrow side by saying that art that is not included shouldn't be included. And you can do that on the broad side by giving arguments as to why this stuff that isn't art should be included anyways. The issue with wonder as an aesthetic theory is that it is too broad and tends to capture a lot of stuff that we wouldn't consider to be art. But that might not be the worst thing, um, as biting the bullet and saying that things like natural beauty are also kind of like art doesn't really seem that far-fetched. Anyways, I hope today's show was not only fun, but perhaps set off some trains of thought to new and interesting destinations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, have ideas for future episodes, or just general feedback about the show, feel free to shoot me an email at wcilio20 at cmc.edu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Cilio, and this is Think Like a Human.